Hello and welcome to a new episode of SIS Masters Podcast. I'm Arnaud Richard, founder of Sports Innovation Society, and I interview for you some of the best experts in the sports industry. Today, I welcome Michael Payne, nominated as one of the world's most influential marketers. By advertising age, while working for the Olympic Games, he is now CEO of his own strategic consultancy, working with many of the world's leading sports groups and companies. He has a lot to share about the challenges and opportunities of properties and big events. Welcome. Hi, Michael. How are you today? Very well. Great to be with you and with your listeners. Thanks for taking the time for being with us today for SIS Masters podcast to speak mostly about the challenges of, and opportunities of properties and big events. You know, most of our audience will know you as the father of Olympic branding and the first ever marketing and broadcast rights director of the IOC, who helped going from bankruptcy to generating a multi-billion dollar business. But you have achieved a lot more as well, uh, helping Formula One and helping other big properties, media and so on, and being a board member of different companies. But first question for you today, looking at your website, michaelarpain.com, which I recommend, uh, first thing is a picture of you with Thomas Barr and Jacques Ma. What does it mean to you? That was one of the most innovative um, partnership deals that uh, I put together. Um, which was the big strategic partnership between Alibaba and the IOC. Uh, that photograph was actually taken at the celebratory dinner in China uh, when the IOC sort of paid its official visit to the Alibaba headquarters in Huangzhou. But the, the partnership um, illustrated many, uh, many new things. Uh, it was the first of the Chinese companies to step onto the, the global stage in a big way. Uh, it's funny, when I went to first talk to Alibaba, I actually spent probably the better part of a year engaging with a company that I thought was, um, if you want, the coordinator front for all of Alibaba's sports strategy, which was a company called Ali Sports. And whilst Ali Sports was, if you want, part of the family, um, they didn't actually have any real direct coordination or oversight over Alibaba. And after about a year, I frankly wasted time in discussions with Ali Sports. I'd said, look, this is going nowhere. Uh, and to my Chinese partners at the agency Shanghai, I said, look, uh, let's move on. Uh, this is going nowhere. And they said, well, come on, let's have one final try. Uh, and I said, okay, but get me five minutes with Jack Ma, which is perhaps easier said than done. Uh, but it turned out that both Jack Ma and, and I were speaking at the SPIEF Congress in St. Petersburg. And I had five minutes there with Jack. And he, of all of the business leaders, uh, and I've been very privileged and fortunate to meet many of the great leaders around the world, I would say he has to be by far the most visionary, clear-cut uh, executive I've encountered. And in five minutes, we mapped out a future for sport that initially I thought was all going to be about e-commerce, which is perhaps what Alibaba, you know, like Amazon is most famous for. 
But actually, the real driver and engine is their cloud business, is helping the companies or organizations to understand data, uh, the power of data, the creation of the digital agenda. And that really was the sort of transformative um, nature of this partnership. And possibly one of the if not the most important partnerships the IOC has ever signed. Uh, you know, I've been involved in not just a belittle, you know, partnerships like Coca-Cola or Visa, uh, but they're not changing the dynamic and technology uh, in the way that Alibaba has. And maybe just to give one um, small example of, of the sort of indication changes at play, uh, before the Tokyo Olympic Games, we looked at how cloud technology could transform the broadcasting of the games. In particular, that you know, the broadcasters wouldn't have to send thousands of technicians to the games. They could manage a lot of the broadcast and the editing through cloud technology. And I think at the time we were estimating that maybe 2% of the broadcast would be tested on cloud technology. Well, along comes COVID. The games were postponed a year. Uh, Tokyo ended up more than 25% of the broadcast on cloud technology, on Alibaba Cloud. Uh, Beijing was probably 40%. And if you look into the future, um, by the time you get to Los Angeles 2028, potentially all of the broadcast will be on cloud. And you're looking at just how technology is, um, is coming in to facilitate, improve, transform the, the operation of the game. So that, that's, a, listen, forgive me, a very long story, but it was a, uh, it was a fun moment there uh, of bringing Thomas Bach and Jack Ma together. Mm. And I remember one day in, in Tokyo, I spoke with Ali Sports people and Obviously, there's a cloud part, uh, which is massive, the e-commerce part, which is massive. But also, when they decide to do something, the scale of any action and the reach that they get, which is incredibly huge. If you do something like in your European market, you might reach a few hundred thousands of people being activated. If you do it in China, thanks to them, with them, you, you reach hundreds of millions. Massive scales. Let, but before going back to the tech and data, which are two of the topics that uh, that makes a difference in the sports industry today. Let's go back quick in time. When you started your mission at the LUC early in the 80s with Juan Antonio Samaran as president, very recognized president, what was the job to be done? Save the organization from bankruptcy. Uh, I mean, quite, quite simple. Um, in the early 80s, there was no funding. Uh, there were no cities lining up to bid for the Olympic Games. You know, people forget that, you know, for 1984, uh, there were actually two candidates, Tehran and Los Angeles. Well, Tehran sort of had a small revolution and the Ayatollahs didn't think it would then be a good idea to invite the rest of the world to, uh, to Iran. And Los Angeles was looking at the legacy uh, from Montreal, where the cost of staging the games, or more specifically, the infrastructure that was put into Montreal, 
for the games uh, bankrupted the city. And Los Angeles decided to have a vote. And the Americans loved the Olympics, but they turned around and said, but we will not support one taxpayer's dollar being used to stage the games. And effectively, it was game over. Um, and, you know, a little told story, you know, which I published in, in my first book, Olympic Turnaround, was when Samranch became president and uh, he came back to the IOC headquarters in, uh, uh, in the summer of um, 1980. Uh, and he looked at the IOC's books and basically said, have I made a terrible mistake? Should I resign and give up? Because most people at the time were writing the obituary of the Olympic movement. And if by chance you could persuade some city to step forward and that the government or whatever would pay for it all, then odds on, just as you're about to stage the games, they would be caught in the crossfire of geopolitical boycotts. So it was not a pretty picture in the early 80s. Uh, you know, fortunately, Samaranch, who was a, a visionary leader, um, very patient, uh, slowly turned it around. Uh, and I was, was part of his team um, to, to help him achieve that, both from the financial perspective. Uh, and you literally were writing you know, the rule book or making it up as you went along. Uh, but also the political perspective as to how do you effectively sort of kill the cancer of boycotts. And you know, people forget today, you know, they look at how successful you know, the Olympic Games are or, or even the Soccer World Cup. Uh, it was a totally different uh, perspective back in the early 80s. Well, where's the factors that make it switch from being in a you know, losing position and not, not attractive at all to becoming you know, a multi-billion uh, multi dollars business? What, where's the pillars drive that growth? Um, a number of elements. I mean, first of all, the changing nature of the broadcast market where broadcasters began to understand the power and importance of sport, and in particular, live sport, as one of the key ways to ensure a very large audience. And so once broadcasters understood that and you began to have a little bit of competition or you could help create competition, uh, that helped to start the broadcasting rights. Eventually, the top sponsorship program uh, also became a major driver. Um, that's the IOC's worldwide sponsorship program uh, that today is generating, I think, more than $3 billion over a four-year period. Um, but interestingly, when we started out with that sponsorship, and we started talking to companies, and they said, but you don't have any advertising in the stadium, you don't have any advertising on the athletes, which a lot of people forget until they go and look at the Olympic broadcast and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, it is different. I, I'd forgotten. Um, but we, not necessarily for any divine marketing strategy, probably just because we were highly conservative, wanted to avoid introducing advertising into the stadium. And a lot of the companies said, well, what's the point? Um, if we can't have our name you know, on the advertising boards, what's the benefit? And there were two 
sponsors, um, Visa and 3M, who understood that potentially there was something much bigger here, that it wasn't about having your name plastered on an advertising board, but how would you use what was the world's largest event, the world's most recognizable symbol, the five rings? How would you properly integrate that into your marketing strategies? Not as a add-on to the side, but make it a core part of the strategy. And when we finally got those two companies on board and people began to see their marketing campaigns and programs, that transformed perception of sports marketing. Ah, there's there's a different agenda and approach here. Um, And so that helped sort of build a second pillar of revenue. Um, And then probably the, the staging of the Olympic Games in Barcelona in 92 was so transformative to the city in terms of how the politicians used the games as a catalyst to, frankly, make up for 30 or 40 years of neglect of infrastructure, lack of infrastructure development, uh, that a lot of politicians and governments around the world then woke up and said, maybe we should have a second look at this, Uh, that it wasn't just about the staging of a 17-day sports event, but was a yes a great festival the largest sports event in the world but how it could be used for rebranding of the nation for the development of a region uh, for the development of infrastructure and so all of these different elements sort of came together uh, and helped to drive the turnaround hmm. In that process, I mean, we can easily say, uh, and I dare to say you've left a great legacy by building uh, those programs, both on the media side and on, on the broadcaster side and on the sponsorship side and generating interest for, uh, for cities or countries. Uh, but what were the main ob- obstacles? Because it's easy to look at it now and see the results and say, oh, fantastic. But the process, I'm sure, has not been that easy. Um. That's a great question. Um, you, know, you would actually think perhaps that the biggest challenge was persuading companies to sign up, and it was a very big challenge. But an even bigger challenge was persuading, at the time, 160 countries to sign up to a centralized marketing system. You know, they had their power, they had the control over the rings, they had their power, and they didn't want to give that up. Or you had the American Olympic Committee turning around and saying, just let me get this straight. You're going to sign up all of the countries in the world. And they said, yep. What, including the communist countries? Well, we're going to sign up all of the countries. And you're going to take the American sponsor dollar. I said, well, companies like Visa and everything are worldwide. No, no, no. You're going to take the American sponsor dollar and you're going to give it to the communists and steal our gold medals. You could have the reverse discussion with the Soviets or you know, at the time who were saying, we're very happy with the status quo. 
If you suddenly start bringing in more money for the West, we're going to have to increase our budgets in the East in order to stay competitive. So it was probably four years nonstop traveling around the globe to get 160 countries to sign up to a single marketing vision. And that, at the time, was backed by Horst Dazzler, uh, the, the former uh, boss of, of Adidas, uh, who was a close friend of Samaranch, because Samaranch wasn't sure and he didn't have the resources to pull this off. Um, you know, we, we probably had 50 rounds of negotiations with Germany. 50. And then, okay, maybe it didn't take as many rounds with Somalia. It took more with America. So the single perhaps biggest achievement um, of the Olympic marketing was getting all the countries to sign up and to have a centralized um, marketing structure. Because without it, you know, the companies are saying, what's the point? You know, we want to do this on a worldwide basis. We're not interested in cherry picking one country here, one country there, and having our competitors step in and take over our rights in another country. Uh, and it's been interesting subsequently to see various international bodies and federations with a mixed degree of success centralize their, their rights. I mean, no, currently one sees at the moment the International Ski Federation um, doing what I think is absolutely correct, that it has to be centralized. But needless to say, the Austrians, the Swiss are saying, well, we're quite happy with how it currently stands. Get lost. Yeah, we can see the challenge remaining in a lot of organizations today. Uh, indeed, some did not go through that process of centralizing both TV rights and eventually sponsorship or merchandising. Yeah, all individual in, uh, interests instead of common interests. And it's uh, interesting to say what you mentioned about the perception of, uh, of the Olympics, uh, you know, helping countries that would not deserve it according to some opinions because everyone thinks different, uh, which is probably still a situation today. How would you describe the situation of the IOC today? It's been very challenged with Beijing, uh, you know, a, giving first the Winter Games to Beijing, um, going to, to this kind of countries. I've met a lot of athletes and a lot of great leaders from Silicon Valley saying, okay, how can the IOC do that <laughs> still? And well, that was well, the, a the, the very same leaders were endorsing the IOC's decision uh, to take the Summer Games in 2008 to China. And, you know, there was certainly uh, a feeling that back when that decision was made in 2001, it was absolutely the right decision, universally endorsed by politicians and business leaders and even human rights groups, you know, around the world. Um, maybe a sort of step aside and sort of answer your question, how is the IOC doing today? Um, I think in, in, it's in remarkably good shape. Uh, it's in robust health. Uh, from a financial standpoint, it has excellent revenues from its broadcast agreements, from its um, sponsorship. But 
It shouldn't be about finance. Far more importantly, it should be, one, do the athletes care? And at the end of the day, the Olympic gold medal or the Olympic participation for virtually all sports, not soccer, but virtually all other sports, it is the single most prestigious award there is in the athlete's career. And the second point is, are people engaging and watching? And you probably have more people engaged and connected and watching the Olympics than there has ever been. Are they all watching it on TV? No. And so you need to be also cautious when you suddenly get the print media screaming, oh, look at the TV ratings are down. Yeah, well, the TV ratings may be down in some countries. The digital rating, engagement, and consumption is up. So if you look on the positive side, you know, what does it mean for athletes? Are the audiences growing? Is the business community supporting? It's all very positive. If you then look at the challenges, no question the IOC has probably just been through the most complicated two-game delivery of Tokyo and Beijing. But the picture actually is a lot more complicated than that. And IOC President Bach really has not had an easy time because if you look back at since he became president, the first games that he was responsible for as, as president, I mean, they, they'd been awarded before his presidency, was the games in Sochi, which as a games, in the end, went off remarkably smoothly. But we all then were left with the doping um, scandal uh, that immediately followed the Sochi games. You then went to Rio, so dysfunctional was the Rio organizing committee, bordering on criminal neglect, that the IOC went through those games not knowing if they would make it through the next day, day after day. You then get to Pyeongchang, and two months before Pyeongchang, American politicians and other groups were saying, you can't go, because they were so scared that Kim and Trump were going to nuke each other. And you look at the, the, the geopolitical situation in November, um, it was really unstable. Finally, you get through those three and you think, ah, at last, I, gotta, I can breathe. The Japanese have got it nailed. Finally, we can get back to normality. Huh, famous last words. And the complexity of postponing the games a year and assuming that we would then be out of the COVID um, pandemic and we weren't and continuing to stage the games when the Japanese want for, to force the IOC to pull the plug and the IOC is saying, you want to pull the plug? You pull it. 
and you go on to Beijing and the Winter Games, it's been a tough decade. Uh, but the IOC has been able to pull through. But you've really, one, learnt the operational complexity of staging the world's largest event. You don't see most of it. It's all behind the scenes. But the operational complexity is mind-boggling. Secondly, the way that everything has to be done in the media spotlight, transparency, it's not easy. And thirdly, the sort of political agenda coming back to the forefront of saying that you know, the IOC, the awarding of the games and everything must be according to best practice, best human rights, best transparency, whatever, which, again, is correct. But equally, according to whose views? Anglo-Saxon, Latin, Asian, they're all subtly different. Uh, and navigating through that is a real minefield. Uh, and you know, the, the, the Olympic Games is like a great big oil tanker. You can't just suddenly change on the spot. Uh, but again, I think Bach has made a number of very important changes. Um, you know, the media was very critical of the host city bidding process. Um, to be honest, the process was no longer fit for purpose. And so the IOC has changed it to a dialogue phase to work through with prospective cities. What does this look like? To recognize there isn't one size fits all. And, you know, as you would in a normal business environment to have a confidential discussion to work it through. Needless to say, the media is up in arms now because they say, well, it's no longer so fun. We can't comment or criticize. I mean, you can't win. Um, but if I come back on the, on the report card, you would have to, you know, it, it's fun. sure, it's not all perfect. But on balance, you would have to give the IOC pretty high marks on continuing to deliver, continuing to grow the Olympic brand, and continuing to navigate through an ever more complex media political environment. Mm, totally agree. Uh, when it comes to, you mentioned different topics. Uh, that, that are very important in this. Um, athletes first, let's start with that one. Uh, athletes first has always been at the core of the IOC. Um, and we've seen the influence of athletes getting stronger every day, uh, creating their own brands, having millions of followers in some cases, invent, investing in companies and sport properties themselves for the big ones, of course. But at the same time, you've got a, a lot of Olympic athletes that suffer to pay the bills uh, in many countries. So. Um, some changes happen, like the NCAA allowing sponsorship for athletes. Uh, what do you think about uh, the relation between athletes and the Olympic movement 
Should we change the Rule 40 of the Olympic Charter? Does it have to evolve? How can we evolve even more the athletes and make it even more inspiring for the athletes? Because some, you know, uh, I live in Mexico and some to say, if I want to be an Olympic athlete, if I make it, I may have a bit of success. Most likely I won't make it and my life is ruined. So you've got these extremes that make it very hard. It is inspirational to get a gold medal, of course, but the path to get there is so difficult. Um, absolutely. I mean, the day where you could be an Olympian on a part-time basis, hold down a normal job and just go training at the weekend, doesn't matter which sport you're dealing with, if you want to be an Olympian, you've got to be pretty full-time and dedicated and committed for, for year on year. Um, there's no question the athletes are playing an ever greater role in the direction of the IOC. I mean, starting with, you know, the IOC president is a gold medal athlete. Yep. And I don't know the exact figures, but I would estimate probably 40% of the IOC members are athletes and there's a very active athletes commission um but the whole debate about should athletes be paid and you've got some very vocal athlete groups but they are representative actually of a minority um because first of all uh, only very few athletes sort of become truly financially successful and independent and you know if you, you have to support all the athletes i mean the ioc redistributes all of its revenue to the 200 countries around the world that then allows them to support all of the athletes and i think when you sit down with the athletes and in particular sort of the the, the tennis or golf rock stars uh and they look at the whole situation, they say, no, no, this is, you know, the Olympics is about us all being together, about all sports, about all of the athletes. It's not about suddenly collecting a big paycheck. We do that all the time in all of our other sports and events. So I think, you know, the, the issue going forward is the athlete view and to what extent is the direction of the games uh, the athletes have an important say, and I think they do. Uh, you're always going to have different stakeholder groups who, you know, are going to be listened to. But you know, you engage the athletes on doping, on transgender, on politics. Uh, you know, they'll have opinions uh at times they will be very informed opinions and at other times on on the politics and everything they'll say look that's not my gig there's others you know higher up you know higher up the, the the pay chain or the the political ladder that's their responsibility let me go out in perspective and compete i think what one of, the, one of the big challenges out there at the moment is the extent that politicians jump on the soapbox of sport 
because it's great oxygen. Pontificate with various statements that get good media coverage with not a clue about what they're talking about. And the hypocrisy, um, the lack of understanding that a vast majority of the political class have towards sport um, is, is frankly at times scary. Do you think um, something has to change in some ways in the relationship in that sense? The relationship between the IOC and the hosting countries in uh, building deeper uh, relationships uh, how would you make it evolve to, to, to make those relationships more meaningful and more impactful, I would say? Well, I, I think the IOC has a pretty good relationship with each hosting country. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, those politicians, you know, who've got the responsibility of delivering the games and are part of the seven-year journey, they may not understand it all at the beginning, but they are well informed by the end of that journey. Mm -hmm. um, I think the change that the IOC has made now about creating a dialogue phase to see what makes sense for that particular country and what might be right for country A is not necessarily going to be right for country B. Uh, and that level of flexibility, I think, is critically important. Mm -hmm. Not that you know the IOC is sitting in ivory tower in Lausanne and pontificating about how this should all work out. But you know, even back in my time, I, I would have battles with local politicians who wanted to build big cathedral venues, mm -hmm. and he'd say, "Yeah, but what's the legacy plan? It doesn't matter." I said, "No, it does matter. There has to be a proper legacy." Because if there isn't one, we at the IOC are going to be the ones who are slammed. But they would still proceed with the sort of ego trip of building unnecessarily because it wasn't fully thought through. I think the IOC now has become much tougher in saying, prove to us that there is a real need and legacy plan before we'll let you go forward and, and develop and build it. Um, so that the dynamic and relationship with the host country, particularly now that there is a proper in-depth dialogue, not necessarily in front of the media day in, day out, which is how it was working before, and then you would have the bidding process hijacked to uh, opposition groups who might not be opposed to the Olympics, but they would be opposed to one or other political agenda. And the Olympics was a very good way of getting that platform out there. And with all of these public referendum, yeah, I, I turned around at one stage to President Bach and said, you'll never win another referendum because the nature, the structure, uh, the way the opposition groups move up, you need to completely rethink how you manage and develop this bidding process, which um, the IOC has taken on board, and I think uh, yeah, is is proving you know, effective. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, 
And we can also see, so there's a binning process and then there's a delivery phase and we can see with Paris and LA that they have a proper identity, as you mentioned, uh, with their own stakes and own, uh, own programs. It's, it's quite impressive to, say, to see uh, also the evolution of the teams involved both on the IOC and on the games organization. I can imagine some years ago, you wouldn't have legacy teams uh you know experts in those topics uh it's been quite sophisticated and very uh very much uh a lot more professional would you agree on that? uh yeah ab absolutely i mean i always describe the role of the ioc here yes it is the master franchise all mm -hmm. but really needs to play the role of coach and to help educate share motivate the host country because the host country has to have ownership in the project. You can't just transcript everything from head office. And so in that sense, it is a partnership where you know, there are certain aspects, the, the basics of the sport and some of the protocol that are prescriptive. Mm. But equally, you want to challenge the host country. How do you bring your thinking forward? What works for you with it, the local culture? How do you make your experience magical so that each games has its own style and flavor has new thinking new initiatives and that's part of the if you want the, i'd say the strength of the olympics is yes it's in one sense the same product but each games has its own flavor. color and style and flavor exactly mm -hmm. another thing you mentioned uh, so we talk about the at least a bit about the hosting cities. Now, to keep relevant to uh, to the audience, the sports, uh, the different sports to take place, and how sports must evolve to keep being relevant. Another of the key challenges. No, you've got some sports that are facing huge uh, problems, like boxing or pentathlon, having to change the rules to be more fair. And you've got some new sports. What is your reflection of, on those trends and how to keep relevant, being relevant for new generations, which is the key? Well, you use the, the, the key word there, relevance. Um, you have to continue to evolve. President Bach has a slogan outside his office, which it says, change or be changed. And the sports aspect is just but one part uh, where some sports federations you know have evolved very successfully on their own if you take volleyball and how they then introduced beach volleyball how they've introduced entertainment uh you've had other sports like wrestling that had to be thrown out of the olympics in order to have their wake-up call and the new leadership very successfully came in and then listened to the IOC and evolved the rules and they were welcomed back. And you have sports at the moment like boxing uh, or weightlifting uh, that seems remarkably stone deaf to the need for change. And this may be more change as it would relate to governance, to ensuring that the sport is fair I mean, as a society, I think match fixing is a far bigger risk to the integrity of sport than doping. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then you got sports, and I, I have a declared interest here because I was asked to go in and help of modern pentathlon, mm-hmm. who is one of the classic or the classic sport. And there's always a balance that, you know, when you're modernizing, you have to keep modernizing, but don't forget your heritage and your DNA. And uh, we're looking at modern pentathlon to uh, not just replace equestrian, but bring in uh, obstacle racing. Um, There's been some headlines recently about ninja warriors but you actually have the potential here to take what is one of the weakest sports on the Olympic program and with the transformation that we're looking at, make it into a two-hour television blockbuster special. Uh, and it will be interesting to see you know, whether we're successful by Los Angeles 28. What is the innovation process when you, if you take potential on five sports, horse riding with... No, it's very difficult for, for the athletes because bad horse makes a big difference and your chances. Um, we organized in Mexico the world championship and that was innovative because it was all in one same location. Uh, but no, you want it in two hours. What is the innovation process that is put in place to design the new format that has to be, uh, developed? Well, I mean, in the in the modern pentathlon case, um, uh, I was you know, approached by the honorary president of the sport, Prince Albert, mm-hmm. uh, to say, "Look, we got a problem. You know, any ideas?" And I said, "No, but if you want, let me bring together three or four of the greatest thinkers and minds in the sports space." who are at the forefront of television, at the forefront of digital data, or at the forefront of branding, lock us in a conference room for two days with a few of your leaders and a few of your athletes. And let's see what comes out the other side, which is effectively then what happens here. Um, I think you can... You, you, at times, it may be a consultative process. At times, it might be gut instinct from a strong leader who says, that's what we got to do. Because if you're bringing the whole world with you, um, you know, democracy, getting democracy, and as I said, the hardest thing in launching the top program was getting the 200 countries to agree to a single strategy. We didn't have a choice. We had to go and get them to agree. But sometimes it's just, gentlemen, you've elected me to be your president. This That's is me. what we're going to do. If you don't like it, fire me. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it's interesting what, what you mentioned about, okay, let's involve the best people from uh, the board, on the broadcast or the media side so people – Normally, federation are not very much look, uh, listening to. <laughs> um, well, I think they are more and more because they are fighting for an audience in what is an ever more crowded marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, that when I started out you know, in a country, you know, if you were lucky, you had two TV channels. That was it. Yeah. So you switched on and you didn't have any choice. You watched what somebody decided. Today... It's unlimited, the number of channels. So if you're not providing something that is entertaining, 
guess what? There's another 1,999 channels that I can go and watch that is entertaining. And sport, at the, in its most simplest format, we're in the entertainment business, either because of what you want people to watch or how you want people to use their precious leisure time to participate in. And time has become more precious. People have ever more choices to what they want to do. And it's a competitive environment. Am I going to watch sport or am I going to watch the Kardashians? Am I going to uh, go out and ride my bike? Or am I going to sit back and play video games? What is your take on new on the new sports and the new formats that will be launched with the Olympic series? Uh, I think the the new sports that I saw in Tokyo uh, were excellent. I thought the climbing was particularly strong. Um, I think the initiative of trying to provide a greater build-up and roadmap of the, the sort of Olympic qualifying series where with new sports coming onto the program, you don't have a qualification history, so you can do it. Um, I think it's all, all very much going in the right direction. Mm. Um, the, it's easy to sort of add sports. You know, the challenge is you cannot just keep adding because – Uh, the logistics, as you know, we saw most recently with Rio, it's just too big and too complicated for a city to cope. Do you spread it out over a broader region? Yes, but with a note of caution that you don't lose the magic of the unique consolidation of being all together. Yeah. When, when it comes to... The Olympic cycle is a is a four four years cycle, um, winter or summer, uh, and we've seen with FIFA that FIFA has, well, Gianni Infantino has tried to have a World Cup every two years, which in many senses, uh, in many ways, uh, both football and business could make a lot of sense. I would beg to differ. Oh, you, I you think would. Take, I, I think taking the World Cup to every two years would be a disaster. You think so? And, you know, I, I was amused when I watched all of these sort of, uh, public votes, um, you know, that FIFA put out and saying, oh, but the fans want the World Cup every two years. Was said, guess what? If you went and asked a six-year-old, how often would he like Christmas? He'd vote to have Christmas every day. The point being, over a period of time, you would lose what makes it special. And what is the balance with, so we say, the World Cup, where, yeah, football is 24-7 around the clock, but the symbolism of the World Cup is the once every four years. I know from quite a few of the chief marketing officers of 
the FIFA sponsors, they did not think this was a good idea. They were saying, hang on, just, do, you, do you think you're just going to go and double the money? Oh, How do no we way. keep a promotion running and everything? TV may be different, but you know, just because football is so dominating. Uh, ticketing and hospitality would have been different. But the question over a generation, would you lose you know, the, the one thing that makes it special, which is rarity value? And I would always be in the camp of you, know, you look at the number of world championships that have gone from four years to every two years. They've lost a lot. You know, the world ski championships used to be very special once every four years. Now it's every two years. Okay, world championships, world cup, world gala, world this, world that. You get lost. You, you might get a short-term revenue boost. But uh, it's probably subject to another podcast and a longer debate as to the, the pros and cons of you know, the World Cup every two years. Well, why don't you make it every year? So I've got your answer when it comes to the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. no, no doubt. One last question before we go to a ritual um, of a series of questions. One last question. We spoke a lot about the Olympics and, and the challenges, even though it's a short time. Now, what do you think will be the key drivers for the sports business? It's, it's, it's a broad question, but what would be the key drivers to keep the sports industry and the sport business grow? That You mentioned data and technology. Um, and I know you've been part, for example, of Tricycle Story amazing company using data to leverage and get insights and take decisions. What do you think would be, if you have to name three, the three drivers to keep the industry growing? Data, data, data. Uh, the, the ability to customize the experience down to an individual fan basis. And if you've got 4 billion people watching the Olympics, you've potentially got 4 billion experiences being able to personalize and customize. Whether that data is in how you continue to evolve your product or how you distribute your product or how you customize it, I think uh, that is by far the biggest transformation that will, will be coming. Um, I would also underline that if we are in the entertainment business, uh, not to suddenly sort of unnecessarily create artificial perspective and entertainment, but continue to see how do I evolve the, the, the rules? How do I evolve the whole presentation? Um, if you look at Formula One, um, I think after an initial uh, very shaky start with Liberty taking over from Bernie Eccleston, not having a clue what it is they'd purchased, and some executive decisions by people who had never... <clears throat> 
ever worked outside of America. Uh, it took them some time to get a proper feel. Uh, but I think they are now in a very good place. Yeah. Um, the They've got one or two brilliant visionary TV producers uh, who are changing the way it's presented. Uh, and along with, you know, programs like Drive to Survive, you know, they, they've, they're entertaining. They're communicating. They're engaging. Um, and are delivering. As I and said, from what was a very, very initial shaky start. And they've made a lot of changes. Uh, changing the rules of the sports, of the rules, of the teams, on sustainability, on the format of the, of the races. They made a lot of changes. So to end this interesting conversation, thank you so much. A ritual for us, a series of quick questions for quick answers. Who's your favorite all-time athlete? Put me on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> who, who is my favorite? All-time athlete. Jean-Claude Killy, the oh. skier. Triple gold medalist from, from France. Oh, yes. Because I, I came from skiing. Nice. What's your favorite event? Freestyle skiing in the, in the Winter Olympics, because, again, that was my sport. Uh, but if I go to the summer games, actually, it would be one or two of the more unusual sports. So as I said, climbing was a, uh, a great hit. Weightlifting is another. I, I, the atmosphere and energy and electricity in the weightlifting stadium is unique. And uh, in Tokyo, I, I watched the super heavyweight final lift, and I hoped it wasn't the last time you see weightlifting at the Olympics. <laughs> What one business advice you receive you would like to share? Uh, listen and make sure that you're listening on a worldwide perspective, not through the narrow focus of a particular Anglo-Saxon or other view. Listen mm -hmm. worldwide. What leader inspired you very deeply? Samaranch. What turns you on? Um, success, but success and the ability to change In a, in a constructive sense and to, and to see how you contribute to positive change. What is your favorite word? Word? Yeah. Two words. Can I have celebrate humanity? Nice. Humanity. Humanity. A day in your life, what do you start with? The first two hours of your day? Uh, Depends what part of the year it is. If it's the winter six months, it's uh, looking outside at the mountains and seeing how quickly I can get out climbing on the slopes. Hmm. What does it mean to you being happy? Uh, health, great family, uh, great friends. Thank you, Michael, for your time. Thanks for sharing. Uh, there will be other occasions, I hope. The audience, you can know more about Michael on michaelarpain.com. And I do recommend the last book, Tune In, the unofficial and entirely unsectional Olympic story, history. Sorry. So, interesting one. Thank you again, Michael. And we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Uh, great to be with all your listeners. And uh, congratulations for continuing to sort of share some insights on this wonderful industry. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to a new SIS Masters podcast. We'd love you to subscribe. Please leave a review or rate the podcast. It will help us improve. We'd love to see you in the next episode. Enjoy. Enjoy.